Welcome to the SaaS Sales Performance Podcast, the show for anyone wanting to be on the cutting edge of SaaS tech sales. We provide the tools you need to take advantage of the rapidly changing sales environment. We bring you the leading experts on the front lines of SaaS sales and distill down our famous masterclasses into bite-sized practical tips. Your hosts will be Ash Ali and Matt Milligan. And on this podcast, we'll be helping you transform your ability to sell more so you can smash your targets. Hey everyone, and welcome to the 35th episode of the SaaS Sales Performance Podcast. In this episode, Matt chats to Paul Dudley, co-founder and CRO at Gravity Data. Paul's sales story begins in Silicon Valley, veering away from a career in science to take a role in data analytics at a company who, in his words, just happens to be a SaaS business. Paul talks through his experiences since, reflecting on mistakes and lessons learned in the worlds of sales enablement, coaching, and onboarding. So with no further ado, here are Matt Milligan and Paul Dudley. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the SaaS Sales Performance Podcast. Now, continuing in our theme of the first senior sales hire, I'm thrilled to be joined by another superb sales leader who is a fellow peer from Pavilion here in London. Joining me on the show today is Paul Dudley. Paul is the co-founder and chief revenue officer of Gravity Data. Paul has recently co-founded that business with the founder of Avora. And Paul, we're really looking forward to jumping into your journey today. You spent an amazing period of time establishing the sales function at Avora with the founding team there. For those who haven't connected with you before, haven't come across your journey, no better way to start off than jumping right in to who you are and a little bit about your, your journey so far. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on and yeah, excited to share a little bit more about my journey. I'm a Californian living in London. I started out in Silicon Valley kind of at the beginning of the SaaS era, I guess, in around 2006 at what was then kind of an NLP innovation company. So we were trying to use like text analytics to understand where we could connect businesses like R&D departments with people who might have solved problems that they have. And that didn't exactly work out, that application, but it turned out that the underlying technology was something that was useful for looking at social media monitoring, which in those days was in its very infant stages. It's now a company called NetBase. It was called Accelevation when I joined. And yeah, I started out as an analyst and then kind of moved through into like CS and account management roles and then a bit of SDR work essentially as we pivoted and started selling social media analytics and then into an individual contributor role there and, and then ultimately leading sales at NetBase. I'm always fascinated to hear how people end up in sales and revenue. I mean, what was it for you that attracted you to that specific career? And it sounds like you spent most of your career in the sales world. Yeah, it's a good question because, you know, I think if you'd asked me when I was in university, you know, if I would get into sales, I would have said, no, I, I think my perception of what sales was, I didn't really, I mean, it was like the pop culture kind of like pushy car salesman kind of thing, which I didn't identify with at all. I studied physics and I remember actually sitting in a lab one day and thinking, this is probably not exactly right for me. Like, I don't think I'm destined to be a scientist. And one reason for that was that I felt like there was an element of like being able to connect with and work with people that really wasn't a big part of that and came upon the idea of like, right, maybe being an analyst is something that, that would be good. I'm kind of bridging like this technical side of things with having to also you know, communicate with people. So that was sort of my best guess coming out of university of where I would end up. And that was the first job I had. That was my title, but it happened to be a SaaS company. And basically it was a technology that wasn't good enough yet. So 
you needed that human layer in between to actually make it useful. But I had a great mentor, a guy named Barrett Foster, who's still, still a good friend. He kind of took me under his wing and, and saw that I had some potential in sales and and kind of kept pushing me towards that. Super interesting. And I guess the final piece that I found kind of piqued my curiosity is the fact that you spent a decent chunk of your early to mid-career at one company. I mean, we've all seen the data around sales tenure, specifically in leadership roles. I think chief revenue tenure is down to, to 11 months. What was it looking back that you think kept you at that one company for that period of time? Yeah, I think it was for a lot of the time, you know, we were growing fast and there was a lot of ways that I felt like I could contribute. You know, I felt like I was adding real value to the company. So, you know, that started off as individual contributor where we were, you know, initially growing fast and, you know, bringing on a lot of deals, helping figure out what that initial process was that would help make it repeatable. Well, I guess along that journey, I also had the opportunity to help open up New York office. So, you know, there's new interesting challenges as the company was growing that kind of kept things interesting for me where I didn't feel like I was just doing the same thing. And you know, for a company that's growing quickly, you really do have to shift. We were 25 people when I joined. We'd gotten kind of an early Series B, but we were more like, you know, a Series A company in terms of scale. And we ended up at, at you know, Series D when I left. So, there was a lot of change and, and a lot of you know growth within the company. So I think that allowed to keep things interesting. And then add a layer of that, which is I you know was able to move to a whole different country. And that was a, another interesting element, which I personally had always wanted to, to do is just to, to try living somewhere else. And it was you know, an opportunity to do that, which obviously introduces and keeps things interesting. And it also, in a way, it feels like going back to a smaller company, because if you're in a satellite office, you know, there's a lot of elements of the business that are obviously mature that are shared with the U.S. in that case, but you're also, you know, a much tighter knit team and and figuring out some new sets of challenges that come with, you know, in this case, selling into Europe. So that helped to keep things interesting and helped me feel like I was continuing to grow. Yeah, for sure. I'd be really keen to dive into some of those nuances. That's a theme that we see come up quite a bit in terms of the difference between, you know, particularly North American and EMEA markets. But before we do that, Paul, I guess one question I was keen to learn about was of all of your experiences, what was the earliest stage company that you jumped into? You know, obviously now you've made the move to founder, but was Avora the earliest in terms of stage and maturity? Um, no, I would say that Accelevation or NetBase was, I think we were 12 or 13 people when I joined. And I actually don't remember, we probably were series A, but at that time, it was a different world in 2006. I think our yeah. level of funding was probably quite a bit less than whatever I had, for example, when I joined. It was a younger company overall. So you've done both the pre-Series A kind of post-seed scrappy, figuring out go-to-market fit, and then you've also done through to establishing predictable, scalable, repeatable revenue process. I mean, just talk us through how you think about those two phases, because we see obviously a lot of individual contributors joining companies post product market fit where they have very established playbooks on how to sell the thing. And not many people talk about or celebrate the earlier days when it is really scrappy and far more messier. I mean, just give us some perspective from your own experience, if you will. Yeah. And I mean, it was something that I thought a lot about before leaving Bright Edge was like, what do I want to do? Right. Do I want to go to another late stage or later stage company that's like scaling up in Europe, let's say. I decided wanted to stay here for my next job, but I wasn't sure should I join a Series B when they're, you know, putting their first feet on the ground in EMEA or join a later stage company that's got a bigger team here or 
go back to an earlier stage. And I just had really fond memories of the kind of problem solving that you're doing at the early stage. So I wouldn't have classically thought of myself as an entrepreneur in the sense that I wasn't one of those people that went out and started businesses throughout their university journey or anything like that necessarily. But I think I had it in my head that I'd really enjoyed those early days at NetBase and kind of figuring out like, right, we've got something there and there's a business problem and everything hasn't been joined up. But that process of exploring that was something I think was really rewarding for me. And it's really fun when, when those things click and it starts to really ramp up. But I think something about being there at that point was, was something that I really wanted to go back to. And I guess reflecting on what that means for other people, I think it's trying to reflect on, you know, is it something where you want to fit into and really execute on a process? Or do you want to go and explore and find what that process is, find where your customers are and answer more open-ended questions? And I think my inclination tends towards the, the latter there. Yeah, I mean, it sounds, and we'll come on to talk about this in a moment, but it sounds like the journey of a founder. Those early days, you, know, you join an early team, you are literally out in the market doing discovery, trying to really validate that you have got product market fit. I mean, you spoke there around things clicking and that kind of tipping point. In your experience, what are some of those signals? How did you kind of make a judgment call in previous roles just to say, okay, now we've got something here. The machine is fully built. Let's now pour some some fuel on the fire. What, what were some of the yeah. signals, Paul? I think I maybe I'll contrast what we saw at NetBase with what I saw when I moved to Bright Edge. So NetBase, again, this is 2008, 9, 10, let's say, we really started to get into the social media side of things. And you know, it was very much in the news, right? And what I found was like part of that clicked. So because of the problem we were talking about, helping people understand what was being said on social media about their brands, we could get meetings with CMOs in, you know, Fortune 500 companies. Like, I just didn't say it was easy, but like, you know, that piece of the pie, like, was clicking. And then where the challenge was, was that those people didn't really know how to connect that to value. And like, when it came time to getting out the checkbook, like, could they pay $2,000 a month or whatever it was, you know, like, did it make sense for them? So that piece was like still not there yet in terms of product market fit. And that was actually what drove me to leave NetBase was I heard from Barrett Foster, who I mentioned earlier, he had moved to Bright Edge and he, he called me up and he said, like, we can show ROI for what we're doing. Bright Edge is, is SEO software. And, you know, it was something that maybe not in the whole market, but for like e-commerce and travel, people just really already understood that SEO was valuable for their business and they needed to spend money on it. And they were already doing that. They had agencies and things that the technology landscape was very immature at that time, but people kind of knew that that was something they needed to invest in. And I think that was where things maybe clicked for me as well. Was like that people just being aware that there's a problem isn't necessarily enough. Like they need to understand like how, how it fits into their business. And, you know, the, the question that really vexed us at, at NetPace was what's the ROI of this? And it was just a really hard question to answer because we didn't know. It's like, you kind of just know like your gut that you should be paying attention to what's being said on social media. But I think a lot of the early social media companies that were successful, I mean, there were some monitoring companies that did well, but I think the first wave were started to be when advertising came out and you know people could more clearly tie things together with their activities. And then at Bright Edge, it was, we're going to help get more traffic to your website and you're going to sell more widgets or more, you know, airline tickets or whatever it was. That was something that our biggest challenges were headcount and getting legal documents through for signature, right? Like people wanted to buy something. We had a great product. 
And it was just starting to remove barriers to that. Like actual transaction was kind of the biggest thing and get in front of more people. It just sounds like those two phases we've spoken about there are just that totally contrasted in terms of you feel in those early days, like you're trying to push water up a hill. You see little glimmers of product market fit. But then, as you said, it sounds like as soon as things click, you're literally inundated and it's almost like the market is then coming to you. It must be a pretty sweet feeling. Yeah, for sure. And like, as I say, there's, there are other challenges that come with that. And, and I think we definitely felt that at Bright Edge, which was, I think that because of some of the early success that I had and other, particularly one other rep, like we're really successful in the early days of Bright Edge. And then, you know, I think there's it's a very classic thing that, you know, leadership will do is you take, you know, get, get a spreadsheet and you say, okay, if we get 10 more people who are doing that, then like, you know, that's where we're going to, how are we, we're going to get to our number next year, right? Which is obviously where you should always start. But I think the piece that we actually missed a bit there was that you needed enablement as a part of that as well. And just adding headcount, you know, in that case, the product was complex enough and the market was specific enough that, you know, it wasn't just a warm body that you needed to make those deals happen. You needed to be able to understand the market. And I think that was probably the first like real challenge at Bright Edge was more about solving, like, how do you not only add reps, but make sure that they're well equipped to actually be successful because, you end up with, you know, A, like people not hitting their number, but then you have some compounding challenges that causes with like culture and, you know, how people feel about working there is that they feel like there's a number that they've been given that they're not given the tools to be successful, then, you know, it's not a great recipe for success. So that was kind of the next set of challenges, which is not insignificant, but an interesting one. Yeah, we're seeing that a lot. I mean, in the current market, Series A typically being that tipping point between the kind of uphill, scrappy battle to the everything clicking and getting that machine humming on the enablement side. It's super interesting though, because quite often what I'm seeing in the market is that the first senior sales hire or the leadership team just haven't really thought about it. So they're hiring new reps, they're adding new bodies in because there's demand to fill and there's pipeline. But what are some of the specific challenges that you've seen in that enablement space? I mean, is it just lack of time because you're there, you're in the trenches trying to close deals. Therefore you don't have much as much time to coach and nurture new reps? I mean, what are some of the specifics in your experience? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a big one, right? And I know that from some experiences that there's a tendency, and this can happen at different stages, right? Like sometimes it happens with founders and they're just assuming that, you know, because they were able to do something repeatedly that a rep could do it, or, you know, maybe you're a little bit past that and you've had a couple of successful reps and maybe you've hired a VP, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that if you just add bodies, you're going to get there. So I think there's a couple of dimensions. Like one is, you know, reflecting on what it is that's made the people made deals work that are working, right? So again, if you're at the founder stage, and the reason why things work is that the founder is really compelling, and they understand the market at a super deep level, and they're willing to, you know, go and build things and people like the idea of working with an early stage company, like, that's great. But, you know, those are things that are gonna be really hard for a sales rep to emulate. Whereas if you've been able to kind of take it down a couple levels to here's the method that we're going to use to go and find people who have a particular business problem, get them to expose that to us and then have a, a compelling kind of basic framework, at least, or a script that we know how we can bring somebody in and get them ramped up so they're competent enough to be credible and be able to say that, hey, this is how we're going to solve that problem for you. And then you kind of start to know you've got something repeatable versus something that just got a really great founder sales motion or something like that, or really great initial reps, right? Like sometimes you know, that can be the case too. So yeah, I think it's breaking it down to like, what's actually something that we can equip, you know, new people with, and then what's the process to actually get them on board with that, right? So 
it is challenging at a series there. Like you wouldn't expect to have dedicated resources to do onboarding. And so you have to find a way as a leader, you know, to do that yourself. And I think I helped my peers when we were at that stage at Bright Edge, but it wasn't my job. But it became my job when I moved over here. And we were later stage, but we didn't have a lot of enablement resources. So when we we did a lot of promoting SDRs into AE roles, and that was a big part of my job was you know getting them up to speed and setting them up for success as as AEs. And it did take time at Bright Edge to build all that infrastructure for sure, and you know some missteps along the way to get there. But for myself going forward, you know it's definitely something you want to invest in pretty quickly as soon as you can identify those repeatable things and build that framework and and the tools to enable folks when you bring them on board. Having gone through that experience when you first came over here to the UK pool and and you were trying to get those SDRs ramped up to solid performing AEs, I mean, looking back, are there things you would have perhaps done differently? Yeah, I think what one actually is that, you know, we ended up building like as a company, a really deep knowledge base of what are the key skills and competencies that you needed to be an AE. And I think it naturally kind of swings both ways, right? Like maybe you underinvest in something and then you're like, boy, we really need to get more structure and framework and more content, which we did. But then you have to be careful about how you deploy that because what I think we ended up doing was actually having too heavy of a process. Made reps feel like their main goal was to get through this onboarding process rather than their main goal was to get to a place where they're able to connect with customers, understand their problems and be credible in communicating with them. So I think we took perhaps a bit too heavy of a hand in terms of this is the process, this is the script, this is the stuff you have to learn. And it didn't actually empower reps. It needs to be a framework for success rather than a strict, like you have to do it exactly this way. Because then good people will break away from that. But I think, you know, your mid-pack is going to do what they're told. And if that's not setting them up for success, because they're not thinking about what the customer's telling them and they're thinking about what they need to say, say next, then then you're going to have some problems with that. So. That was definitely a learning to kind of balance, like making sure you equip people with resources and not overwhelm them with it. Super interesting. Yeah. At a really high level, if you cast your mind back, how overwhelming was that process? I mean, what did it kind of look like? Did you define, I'm assuming, some set of competencies you wanted to see in the reps? And then was there a, a structured program you put them through? Yeah, exactly. So you basically, I mean, we kind of modeled out our sales process in terms of all the steps that need to happen from an AE's perspective. So basically like before a call, what do you need to do? And, you know, your discovery and your demo and pitch and then your closing on the call and then the whole process from there out. And it was all content that on an individual basis, I felt really good about, right? I think it's like, this is the right basic framework for this. But I think it's just how we ended up deploying it was too overbearing. And so it was, you know, certifying people on being able to do it on a live call, for example. And so a rep would be so focused on, did they do that one thing right that they weren't actually doing the real thing that what they're supposed to do is use that discovery framework, let's say, as a way to really hear what the customer has to say about their problem. And they're focused too much on like their internal requirements rather than like actually connecting with the customer. Super interesting. And absolutely right. One of the things I've seen in my experience with establishing competency frameworks and trying to build certain areas consistently across the team is that perhaps occasionally we're guilty as leaders of trying to replicate our A players and trying to get everyone to sell the same way that they do. But actually, if you look at most of the high performers that I've worked with, they have unique strengths. They sell in slightly different ways. Some may be, you know, fantastic rapport builders. Others may be just incredibly 
clinical negotiators. And it's about identifying those unique strengths. But super interesting point around the overwhelm bit and how do you keep that lightweight? Because it sounds like quite a lot of your time was required as well to make sure that they got through it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of the challenge there is there's there's differences in different markets, right? Like we sold into SEO, which is not like super technical. So I think it's not so technical that, you know, we felt compelled to have a sales engineering function, but, you know, relatively technical as compared with, you know, other markets where people needed to be trained up a fair amount to be credible for those users. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, it's one where you could look back. I mean, I think that's the right decision in terms of that sales org structure, like not having sales engineering, for example. Looking at Avora, for example, we didn't really have a formal sales engineering, but that's a case where it did make more sense because if it was a more technical deployment, we're you know, dealing with sort of machine learning and things like that. And in some cases, some of the more operational pieces of their data warehouses and data ingestion and things like that, that I think it wouldn't necessarily be realistic to expect your sales reps to become experts in that. So that's one of the big decisions I guess you have to make at the early stages of a sales org is what's the right way to serve your customer can sales reps do it on their own or is it something you can do via channel, all those kind of things, which is what we're actually you know, deciding at Gravity now. Nice. And that's probably a nice segue for us to talk about that leap you made. I just had one final question on that piece around scaling out the competence of the team, Paul. I mean, how do you think about the kind of order of steps that you take? You know, you mentioned there in the early days, it's a small team. It's quite often just you and the founders. You then start to get some traction and start building out the team. What we often see is that the next step is the leader is just too constrained to manage consistent structure and, and coaching and development. They tend to then pull in some resources externally to help them do that. We quite often then see a step which is like, we need some sales op support because I need someone to help me run data and reporting. Is there a kind of sequential series of events that you keep in mind on that journey? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I know the exact answer of that, like when it's right. It probably depends a little bit on the business, I suppose. But I think I've heard there's probably a pavilion stat. I think, you know, as you get to maybe 15 people, maybe 20, something like that, you might start thinking about dedicated sales ops type of function. And yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I think Pride Edge is probably the case where I've you know, been through the farthest in that journey where early on we actually did bring in outside sales training. And, you know, what ended up happening was and I think this is true for a lot of folks is that having spoken to other sales leaders is that, you know, at least historically that that would often be, you get a little bit of a burst coming out of like your sales kickoff or whatever, where you've got them coming in and maybe pe some people pick it up, but then it's actually not integrated into your process. And so it's just like, oh, maybe if they were really good, like they energized you. And I think we did two years of Sandler sales training with this really interesting, funny, compelling guy called Guru Ganesh more like a headdress and just like an interesting guy. <laughs> He's funny. You get people all pumped up, but like we didn't, I think, make a big enough investment to say like, okay, we're going to commit to Sandler's. Paul, I've really enjoyed today's conversation. For the audience listening, if they want to find out more about yourself, connect with you, where can they do that? So we're gravitydata.co is the website. And yeah, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm not real big on Twitter, but I am on Twitter, <laughs> Paul, Paul F. Dudley. Would love to connect with folks either way, either on the, the gravity and data side or, or sales and startups. Awesome. Paul, thanks so much for sharing your stories from the trenches and best of luck with the new venture. Cheers. Thanks. By uncovering blind spots on performance, motivation, and skills, UHubs helps busy sales leaders at top SaaS companies to optimize their sales enablements so that they can develop reps and grow revenue.
The UHub's Pulse platform visualizes each team's development needs, personalized upskilling, and provides data-driven coaching recommendations. These save sales managers 40 plus hours per quarter and help reps to ramp up 30% faster. Supercharge your sales team by booking a demo today.